Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Inside Israel News is back. Straight to the news, because there's a lot to say today in this episode. Talks aimed at the return to the Iran deal continue in Vienna. Uh, according to Iran, at least, there is great progress. Uh, although, as I've mentioned before, the United States is pouring just a little cold water on that, saying that while talks are making some progress, uh, there's a lot of distance between the two parties. And uh, Iran's presidential election is coming up. Now, uh, a lot of people make big deal out of Iran's presidential elections. I don't. I think they're they're hardly worth a mention because Iran is run by a clerical dictatorship. Uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is in charge, and he's going to be continuing to be in charge. He's he's in charge now, and he'll be in charge later. So it's like if you have uh, Hitler as dictator, and there's a an election for the deputy Führer. Uh, okay, that's fine. You know, are we going to have Dönitz or are we going to have Goebbels? What what does it matter? Right. It, at the end of the day, it's still going to be Hitler who's the dictator, right? Uh, nobody really cares who Stalin's number two was. Uh, he had a lot of people come and go from his administration, but Joseph Stalin was still the dictator. So uh, I don't think the presidential election in Iran will be a big distraction or, or have much to do with any of this. Uh, unfortunately, it's not you know, it's not democracy. There's no freedom of speech, no freedom of the press. Candidates are not free to say whatever they think. And the the candidates who would be anything like what we would consider a decent or respectable candidate here in the West, that is somebody who is not a terrorist or does not support terrorism or extremism, uh, would not be allowed to run for president in Iran. Wouldn't They wouldn't even be allowed to form a party. They're, they're likely to be beaten, bloodied, and, and possibly murdered, which is what's happened to a lot of uh, people in, in Iran who have tried to oppose the uh, terrorist Islamist government. In any case, uh, so I'm not going to make a big thing out of the, the election. I'll, I'll report the results when they're there for what they're worth. But uh, again, it's kind of like the, the ceremonial presidency in Israel. It's a, it's, a, it's a footnote. It's interesting. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really have a great impact on the political uh, fortunes of the country. So uh, we are hearing that Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State of the United States, and uh, the Biden administration in general are keeping Israel up to date on what's going on in the negotiations. So uh, Israelis are satisfied that there is transparency, that they're, they're hearing what's going on, that they, that they are in the loop and generally well-informed, although obviously Israel disagrees with this nuclear deal. Uh, for a long list of reasons, uh, mostly in that it it doesn't really prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. It only delays their eventual development of a nuclear weapon. It does nothing about their development of ballistic missiles that could carry said nuclear weapons to uh, distant uh, shores. And uh, it obviously it does nothing to address Iran's ongoing promotion of terrorism. They're the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. And Obviously, Israel would like to see that come to an end. Uh, the more uh, money Iran puts out for terrorism, that the more destruction uh, takes place in the Middle East. Uh, Iran finances the Houthi rebels in Yemen. 
which is a, a source of major conflict and, and fighting between the two uh, forces there. A lot of mass murder, uh, just, just terrible conflict there. Uh, they are trying to subvert the governments of Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates uh, and undermine them. Uh, they finance Hamas and Hezbollah. So, I mean, when you look at... Um, when, when you look at uh, Iran, you, most of the trouble in the Middle East finds its source right there in Tehran. So, you know, if we were going to make a, a deal with Iran, if we were going to reach some kind of accord, it would have to be one where Iran ceases to be a terrorist state, ceases, ceases to sponsor these kinds of uprisings, and instead works toward peace. A, a peaceful, democratic Iran, for example, could help, you know, sit at the table in Yemen and broker a peace that would end the conflict, Right. Uh, compromises that don't involve the, the Houthis taking over the country or the Sunnis dominating and persecuting the Houthis. Uh, they could be a constructive partner, but they're not. That's not what the Iranian state is about. So they're, the, the Israelis are, are aware of it. They know what's going on, uh, but Israel does not support that. Now, for those who've wondered and asked, uh, there, there's been some questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it now, although as the new government is sworn in, I will go into greater detail. Uh, both Naftali Bennett, obviously, as he's on the far Israeli right, uh, and Yair Lapid opposed America's Iran deal. And uh, they are uh, they're both uh, strongly opposed to it. And so, obviously, since they sit together in government, they're both going to continue to be opposed to it. Now, Bennett is opposed to it more broadly. Uh, Lapid is opposed to it primarily because it does not address Iran's negative interaction with the region. In other words, all that stuff I just talked about with the terrorism and the proxy wars and all of this kind of thing uh, that Iran is perpetrating. But the new government is definitely uh, against the Iran deal uh, just as much as Bibi Netanyahu was. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, uh, the past, the history of that with the particular political leaders here uh, as I go into Bibi Netanyahu's legacy in a short time. In the last episode, I talked about some of the incitement going on on the right and how things seemed to be getting a little bit dangerous. The rhetoric was becoming uh, especially terse and violent, uh, and that was not a good thing. It was kind of ramping up to some very negative uh, historical events, you know, similarity to negative historical events. So uh, after... Um, after saying as much, I, I did point out that Bibi Netanyahu could help bring to uh, something of an end to it or, or help take some of the, the wind out of the sails. And uh, I called upon him to do so. And on Thursday, he did. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu has accepted that the new government will come to office. He said there will be a smooth transition of power. Uh, I just have to say that there was these hilarious headlines out there. You know, Bibi Netanyahu promises peaceful transition of power. Of course, there's going to be a peaceful transition of power. This is a democratic country we're talking about. Uh, this is not uh, Jordan. <laughs> this is not uh, Venezuela. <laughs> this is not North Korea. We're not talking about, uh, you know, having to come to power by uh, murdering the, the previous leader or riots or military coup or something along these lines. You know, there's, there's a democratic system here. Now, Bibi fought it politically. Uh, maybe a little longer than a lot of other people thought uh, he should have, but he uh, has lost. He's, he's been defeated at this point. Uh, the votes are, are against him. So he said as much, and he says, hey, uh, so that's, that's that, and this needs to come to an end. And uh, so he called for peace, and he called for everyone to calm down and relax, 
and uh, he wants uh, you know to to make this transition. And, and as I said, I mean, if if this government is going to fail, it it may fail in in the co- the course of the coming months and years. And Netanyahu is well positioned leading the opposition. Uh, he may return to office for all we know. I mean. You know, never, never say never in Israeli politics. Uh, anything can happen. So we will see how it all plays out. Uh, in any case, that did take place. So uh, once again, uh, I discuss issues here that are headlines just a few days later. And that is uh, that is a good thing generally. Now, uh, the new government, uh, the change block, has scheduled the vote for Sunday. So they've moved it up one day from Monday. Monday is the deadline. Uh, but uh, they've moved it to Sunday. So Sunday, it's expected that the change block will receive at least 61 votes to install the new government, and that once they uh, once they receive those votes, of course, Bibi Netanyahu will leave office as prime minister, and Naftali Bennett will be sworn in as prime minister at that time, with Yair Lapid as uh, foreign minister and uh, acting prime minister, basically, in rotation. In two years, he will become prime minister, and uh, Bennett will become foreign minister and acting prime minister in his turn, uh, so that Lapid can take over and uh, perform the leadership role at that particular juncture. Channel 12 took a poll uh, the day after Lapid and Bennett announced that they were going to form a government together, so June 3rd, the day after uh, the last-minute announcement, and uh, that obviously came before BB conceded recently. In the poll, taken again for Channel 12, uh, it was found that 46% of Israelis prefer the change bloc government to holding a fifth election in two and a half years, right? Uh, another election, not a popular prospect. People generally just want a government to form and last for a little while, maybe a year, maybe two, but some kind of lasting government. So uh, that is, uh, you know, that's reflected in this poll. 38% would like to go to the polls again. But, I mean, what would that solve, right? Another election that uh, would not be decisive, uh, would be indecisive, not necessarily inconclusive. Uh, but as I said with the with this last election, everybody said hey, it was inconclusive. No, it was indecisive. And uh, now it is proving conclusive. Uh, so I suppose I was right all along. <laughs> Uh, that there there would, I, I believe very strongly, I, I gave a 60-40 chance some form of government would be formed, and it looks like uh, that is happening. In any case, uh, when it comes to right-wing voters in particular, right-wing voters in particular said that uh, they would prefer to vote again. 55% would like to have another election, uh, and that shows you that, you know, the, the people on the right are, generally speaking, um, a, you know they they don't like this government they're not they're not fond of the uh, the change block. Forty two percent of Israelis think the government will be sworn in but won't last, and that seems to be the opinion sort of on the Israeli street these days. That if you just just talking to people, just asking, what do you think is going to happen? A lot of people say, well, the government will come to office, but it won't last very long. That seems to be pretty accurate. So I can I can sort of anecdotally confirm that that is the case. Uh, 16% of people at the time the poll was taken believed that the government wouldn't even come to office. Um, now, since Bibi has, uh, Bibi has since conceded, so of course uh, that number would be lower if the poll were taken again today. Uh, and only 24% of Israelis believe that the government will be sworn in and last, that it will continue to, uh, continue to hold office for a while. 
Now, uh, when it comes to the question of who should be prime minister, uh, or rather trust in a prime minister, uh, uh, the poll showed that 44% trusted Naftali Bennett, while 35% trusted ben, uh, Bibi Netanyahu. So Netanyahu's numbers are down a little bit. Uh, on the right, only 29% trusted Bennett more, while 53% trusted uh, Netanyahu. So people on the right generally still with Bibi, right? Uh, even though a number of right-wing parties have joined the change bloc. Um, this is interesting. Asked who was to blame for the failure to form a right-wing government. 41% put the blame squarely on Bibi Netanyahu. 24% blamed Naftali Bennett, who, of course, ultimately joined the change bloc. And 12% blamed religious Zionism head Betzalel Smotrich. So Smotrich was unwilling to form a coalition that uh, involved the Ra'am uh, Arab party, the Islamist party, and that was, uh, a lot of people thought that was what scuttled a right-wing government. But there was still some distance between Netanyahu and Bennett on forming that right-wing government. So there was still some difficulty in coming, uh, in that government's coming together. Uh, obviously, a quarter of Israelis about think Bennett uh, scuttled the right-wing government. But as Bennett noted, there really wasn't a path to forming a government with Bibi Netanyahu. They just, he just could not come up with the numbers. And uh, obviously, most of the voters just said, you know, it's, it's Bibi, right? Now, uh, when it came to the question of should Bibi have allowed another Likud candidate to run, uh, maybe in his place, even just for a short time, uh, that might have helped to form a right-wing government, uh, some 52% said Bibi should have allowed someone else to run. Uh, 21% uh, said he should not. And uh, on the right, that was 46 to 25. So um, there was, there's a, a broad feeling, again, uh, talking about how personal this is to Bibi Netanyahu himself, there's a broad feeling uh, around the right and nationally that uh, Bibi himself could have done something else, that if he had chosen to leave office, maybe there'd be a right-wing government. It's just kind of what, um, uh, what people are uh, thinking at this point. As I've mentioned in the past, there is something unique this year in the Ra'am party being willing to join the government. The Ra'am party, or United Arab List, is uh, an Arab Islamist party that uh, is looking to join the government to address a number of domestic issues. Uh, party leader Mansour Abbas said that he would consider joining a government, even a right-wing government in Israel, because of the desperate need to address education, crime, and housing issues in the Arab community. And of course, while Israelis and um, well, Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis might disagree about how to handle the Palestinian question, what have you, uh, of course, everyone is on the same page about Iran. Uh, Iran is bad. So Mansour Abbas would oppose uh, Iranian involvement in uh, with Hamas and that kind of thing, just as much as uh, any Jewish Israeli would. So this is uh, this is a point of, of uh, common interest, let's just say. But it is a unique thing, and it's the first time it's happened. And uh, poll, this poll, uh, finally, sort of what it, its final thing that it reported, uh, that 48% of Israelis oppose Ra'am joining the government, while 40% support. So a plurality uh, are not keen on, on this idea of uh, an Islamist party joining the government. That's not surprising, uh, given the circumstances. But at the same time, it's not that wide a gulf. Uh, I would expect more to be opposed to it, frankly, given the history. So there's a lot of optimism that this is going to lead to some healing 
that it's going to lead to resolving problems in the Arab community and that it will generally be a positive thing, but still a lot of opposition out there to it. Now that we're back from the break, uh, and before I go into Bibi Netanyahu's legacy, uh, I'm just going to take a quick couple minutes here to talk a little bit about what's going on in Likud. Already some of the Likud primary is starting to um, come together, and uh, some, some, of the, some of the competitors are making themselves known uh, as for who might succeed Bibi Netanyahu. So I wanted to talk about that just a little bit, and uh, I'll, I'll do, I will definitely have time to talk more about them uh, at, in the future, so you'll get an idea of who these, who these guys are, but I want to make sure that I just mention right now some of the names that are starting to boil and percolate up to the surface uh, as to who might succeed Bibi Netanyahu, because uh, even though he is not out yet, should not be counted out. Uh, the writing is on the wall, we might say, that uh, now that he has uh, left office, chances are Likud will be looking for a new leader in the coming years. And uh, that uh, we'll see who emerges, obviously. Nir Barkat, who is the most popular Likudnik in the party, uh, has already said that it's not time for a primary. So he and other competitors, let's say, for succeeding Bibi Netanyahu, are not quite ready to try to force the issue now. They're, they're going to give him time, uh, see if this new government even lasts, and kind of go forward from there. Obviously, um, whoever is going to be the, the front runner, if you will, or wants to be the front runner, will, will want to have Bibi's endorsement. So they're not going to antagonize him at this particular stage, but let him have... Uh, a little bit of time to heal, let's just say, and uh, recover from the blow, right? So Nir Barkat is the former mayor of Jerusalem. Uh, I'll just tell you what his most famous for right now. We'll, we'll go into He's an entrepreneur and, and a businessman uh, before he was mayor, but I, we'll talk more about that again uh, in the future. But uh, in 2015, he intervened in a, a knife attack, an attempted uh, an Arab terrorist was trying to attack uh, an Israeli citizen, and he intervened, stopped that person, and his security detail came over and uh, detained that person. So uh, he prevented an attack. He was uh, called courageous, and it gave him some national recognition. And because he is a businessman, and because he also intervened in this physical altercation, he's kind of earned a sort of comic book character reputation as Batman. He's Israel's Batman, right? That uh, when when push comes to shove or or knife comes to uh, attack, we have uh, Nir Barkat ready to defend I Israelis. Other competitors, uh, Israel Katz uh, is also uh, he's a, a minister. He's been a longtime Likudnik. He is also a, a friend of Bibi, close Bibi ally, and has been uh, very much a supporter of Bibi for many years. So someone who certainly uh, we would we'd think could uh, schmooze Bibi and and try to finesse getting an endorsement out of him. We'll see. Uh, but uh, one would think that that if Bibi Netanyahu were you know if he had a close friend that that seemed like someone he might want to succeed him, uh, who would continue politics in his vein, Israel Katz would be the the most likely. Uh, but another name is uh, Yuli Edelstein. Now, Edelstein wasn't such a great uh, name in terms of competing for the leadership of Likud. However, he has been serving as health minister of late, and uh, his handling of the virus crisis, the work to get uh, vaccines out and that kind of thing, all of that 
that was to Bibi's credit as a leader leading the cabinet. Well, Yuli Edelstein actually made that stuff happen as health minister. And so he has a very positive reputation uh, for addressing the health crisis. So he's, his name, his star has risen. His name is, is better known now on the street. And so uh, he is a potential competitor. Uh, if I were to say, just like if there was a, a Likud primary tomorrow, you know, if, if somehow uh, Bibi just, you know, after the vote, maybe uh, he waits until Tuesday or Wednesday and he announces his retirement from politics, that he's uh, leaving Likud and, and uh, allows a leadership contest to come. I would say that it's probably Barkat and Katz who are going to go at it and we'll see who comes out of that on top. So as the title of the episode suggests, I am going to discuss Bibi Netanyahu's legacy uh, overall, as he's about to leave office, uh, at least for the time being, for how long, we don't know for certain. Uh, and uh, I've also had a number of people ask on the Facebook page and uh, friends in general, uh, what specifically I don't like, what, what are the negatives uh, on BB? So I thought this would be a good opportunity to go through the positives and the negatives and discuss Bibi Netanyahu's uh, legacy overall. And uh, yes, I'll go ahead and I'll put in some of my opinions so that we can uh, go over all of it. Uh, I do want to say I'm generally favorable toward his administration. Uh, I've been a somewhat reluctant BB supporter because of some of the things I'm going to talk about uh, where I've disagreed with him. Uh, but at the same time, overall, overall, I have uh, supported uh what he has done for Israel. So in terms of, you know, am, am I some kind of BB opponent? No, I, I just feel like he's been in too long and I think he's, uh, you know, made a few mistakes along the way and we'll, we'll go there. So uh, let's discuss the legacy of Bibi Netanyahu. Now, Bibi Netanyahu has had a, a, quite a career uh, in Israeli security forces and his political career as well. Uh, as some of you may know, uh, Bibi Netanyahu and uh, Ehud Barak stormed a plane in uh, uh, at Ben Gurion, a plane that had been hijacked. They they stormed the plane and uh, killed the terrorists aboard who had hijacked it and freed the passengers. And it was quite a it was quite a story. And uh, there is a a new documentary out about it uh, that dramatizes it. And uh, I'm looking forward to its release. Uh, in any case, the uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu is not just a politician in Israel. He has been uh, a warrior for Israel, and uh, he also lost his family member, Yanni Netanyahu, at Entebbe. He was the only Israeli killed uh, in the Entebbe raid, liberating the, the hostages who were kept there. So during that era in the 70s, where there were all these hostage crises and uh, hijackings, the Netanyahus were prominent in the efforts to, uh, to deal with that problem, and uh, Bibi among them. In any case, Bibi Netanyahu rose to power in Likud, uh, beating uh, Menachem Begin's son. And he was able, I've talked a little bit about the 1996 election, he was able to win that uh, mostly on security issues. Security has been his main, his main issue, his main agenda item. Uh, there was a bit of a, a sex scandal in 1999, led to another direct election for prime minister, which he lost to Ehud Barak. And he rehabilitated his career in the aughts uh, with uh, Ariel Sharon. Uh, Ariel Sharon appointed him as finance minister. 
in uh, when when he came to office, and BB was able to bring free market economic policies in to Israel with Sharon's backing. Uh, for those who don't know, and I, I have talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast, Ariel Sharon worked behind the scenes to push free market policies in Israeli politics. He was one of those who negotiated the unity government between Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir in 1984. And part of that was increasingly free market financial system and the reissuing of the, the shekel. So Sharon put Bibi in as finance minister, and that led to a blossoming of uh, economic prosperity in Israel. And so there's been a whole generation now that has grown up with that prosperity. And Israel has more startups per capita than any other country. It is a booming economy. It's the fastest growing economy in the developed world. And honestly, Bibi Netanyahu is uh, an important part of that. Now, you'll hear some people say, oh, no, it wasn't Bibi. It was the business leaders. And Bibi's trying to take credit for it. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu had a major role in doing that. Does that make him, you know, somebody that we should worship? No, but obviously he he should be given the credit where he is due, right? This is something that he did that was positive for Israel. In any case, so Bibi is uh, known for his security agenda and economic agenda. Well, he came back into power in Likud when Ariel Sharon left Likud to form Kadima in 2005. And uh, he led the opposition during the Ehud Olmert years, very effectively, I might add, and won a narrow but uh, critical victory in the 2009 election to become prime minister. Now, he's been prime minister since, uh, through various elections and what have you. And uh, I would say that you know his failure to choose a, a successor seems to be the main failing now. So let's talk about the positives, the great things he's done, because I've talked a little bit about the economics again I, uh, already, I suppose, but I'll go into that in just a minute. Um, around the world, you'll hear people talk about Bibi as some kind of warmonger or some kind of uh, you know fascist dictator, this kind of thing. And, and that's always been curious to me because in terms of his security policy, he's actually been fairly cautious. Uh, he is not someone who runs rashly into a military situation. Um, he has made some mistakes in his time, uh, for sure, but uh, he's not been known as somebody who just jumps in, uh, goes all in in a military situation. He's been very perspicacious, very careful, very calculating in how he has addressed Israel's security situation. And uh, so he's, he's perceived as being more cautious. A lot of people to the right of him uh, get angry with him that he won't just go bomb the snot out of Hamas or, or whatever. And no... Bibi tends to take a, a little bit more cautious, let's do this the smart way, not the hard way kind of approach. So again, there are people talking about him like he's some kind of warmonger, and yet he's known for being very cautious. Uh, too cautious for the far right, uh, and yes, uh, you know, more militant perhaps than the left would like to be, uh, uh, but not, you know, that's politics, right? You know, you're kind of in between this and that, no matter where you go, right? He has endorsed free market policies that have led Israel to its economic situation. When I was in Israel, I had the good fortune to write the English letter, uh, thank you, on behalf of the State Control Committee uh, to the OECD when it admitted Israel. Uh, membership in the OECD is generally considered the rite of passage of a nation from the developing world to the developed world. And at that point, uh, Israel had the fastest growth rate in the developed world, and therefore uh, Israel is the fastest growing economy in the developed world. So... Go Israel. Uh, and this is, uh, again, largely due to the circumstances that Bibi Netanyahu set up for the uh, 
in, in the political situation. In the you know when he drove the free market agenda uh, in Israel, and uh, that uh, that has been very positive. So Israel has benefited from his economic policies. There really isn't any argument that it hasn't. You can disagree with him on other things, but you have to say, if Bibi has done two things for Israel, he has made Israel an economic power, and he has made Israel a world power. Uh, it, Israel's security situation has been stable enough over the last few years that uh, the terrorists uh, have become increasingly a nuisance rather than a, a more serious threat. Uh, and he has uh, worked with... Uh, he obviously worked with Donald Trump to build allies in the Arab world and he's slowly breaking down the walls that separate Israel from uh, potential allies among the Arabs. Obviously, Iran is the bigger threat and, and everyone sort of sees that. And that brings us to diplom diplomacy. I, Bibi Netanyahu navigated the Arab Spring. And if you, if you follow that, I mean, the riots in Tunisia and all of a sudden that government came down and then... Uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi's government came down, and then Syria blew up, and Egypt protests that brought down uh, uh, Mubarak, and then eventually uh, Morsi came to power, and there was the, the Muslim Brotherhood in control of Egypt, my God. And uh, there, was, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of dark days where it looked like uh, things were going in very much the wrong direction, in a, a militant Islamic direction in a lot of these countries. And then the Tahrir Square... Uh, revolt that eventually brought an end to Morsi and the Islamists and brought al-Sisi back to power in Egypt ended that, uh, at least the major threat in Egypt. But Libya and Syria are still failed states to this day. Uh, Tunisia is still ironing out some of the changes that happened there. Uh, Jordan had to make some significant reforms and changes. There were changes in Bahrain. Uh, all throughout the Arab world, there were shockwaves and repercussions from the Arab Spring. And Bibi navigated that and navigated it such that it protected Israel's security. And that was not easy. Uh, he also was very vocal in opposing the Iran deal. Uh, he, he opposed it internationally, meeting with international leaders. Uh, he went to Washington and spoke before Congress. He was very public. Uh, speaking earlier about the Iran deal, uh, of course, Yair Lapid criticized Bibi for being so public in opposing uh, the deal, that maybe he could have been more effective if he had done it behind the scenes. But Bibi has argued that it was part of his very public opposition to the Iran deal uh, in the summer of 2015 that caught the attention of a uh, particular candidate in the Republican Party primary at the time, one Donald J. Trump. And uh, so Bibi kind of takes credit a little bit for bringing that issue to Donald Trump's attention. And when Trump became president, of course, uh, one of his first things was to withdraw from the Iran deal and put sanctions back on Iran because Iran was continuing to be a, a threat to the region. So uh, generally speaking, Israel is in a very strong place diplomatically. So Bibi has brought security to Israel. He has brought prosperity to Israel. Uh, Israel was founded as a very much a socialist country, and now it is very capitalist. It is People are pursuing profit, and they're pursuing it compassionately, and, and there's a good deal of charity, growing charity in the country, and uh, efforts to try to uh, bridge economic inequalities and, and improve quality of life for everyone. But by far, Israel is a prosperous country uh, in thanks to Bibi. And diplomatically, Israel has gained respect and uh, presence in the world. So that's a, that's a great legacy. And I wish I could just stop there and say, that's, that's the good part, because Bibi has been a very effective leader there. 
where has where has Bibi not been such an effective leader? Bibi has a if you'll forgive me for the use of the term, but I, I need to use a word that's not clinical or not as clinical so that you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, and that is that he has a, a sort of a narcissistic leadership style. He is very focused on himself and his own agenda, his own political beliefs, and uh, to the exclusion of all others. He is not the only one. And there have been other political leaders who have been very effective. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was not as narcissistic in her leadership qualities, let's say, as uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu was. However, uh, she was also, uh, in her time, surrounded by people who opposed her policies and who were generally incompetent. So there was, there was, that was, uh, I want to say, in her case, being a narcissistic leader sort of served her. In some places, uh, it definitely helped Bibi. Uh, it can be argued I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a little joke here about politics, okay? It could be argued that it helps to be a sociopath if you are in politics, because not having a conscience, uh, having the ability to, to, to be all against pro issue X today and all for it tomorrow uh, really makes it easy to, to run for office and, and be reelected and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but having a political spine can make it difficult, because sometimes uh, you take a principled stand on a particular issue, and you, you go down uh, fighting. In any case, uh, Bibi has driven off a lot of uh, his protégés and people who work close with him. The, the Israeli political spectrum is littered with former Bibi uh, aides and close supporters and former cabinet ministers and what have you, from Avigdor Lieberman to Naftali Bennett to <laughs> Gidon Sa'ar, and so on and so forth. So many people who have uh, Moshe Kahlon, so many people who have been close to Bibi and have been put off by his uh, personality. So Bibi has uh, basically two kinds of, of people. He has uh, groupies, right, who, people who, who follow him and do what he says, you know, supporting actors like Israel Katz, right, okay, and he has um, people that he drives off, competitors, Right. So he has he has groupies and he has competitors. And that's why he is the star of his own show. And that has been a leadership failing, in my opinion, because he has driven off some talent. He has created enemies where he didn't need to create enemies. Uh, and he it has opened the door for the next issue that I'm going to raise. And that is ethical challenges. Whether or not a real crime was committed or can be proven or the courts convict him of any of the uh, crimes that have been charged with, in my own opinion, the evidence is very circumstantial. The witnesses are very suspect and biased. That's just what I've seen before. Far. I mean, don't you know? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. Studied Jewish law and, and common law and, and the Justinian code and, and codices uh, that resulted from it quite a bit. But I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. But uh, that's just my opinion from reviewing the evidence. I could, you know, that has no bearing on whether the courts will decide one way or another. But uh, it's pretty clear that overall people who are friendly to Bibi, who donate to Bibi, who are supportive of Bibi, their businesses tend to have favoritism over others. And so it has led to the perception of corruption. And when you have a bunch of yes men surrounding you, groupies, it's very easy when you have that narcissistic leadership style, it's very easy to get into that. It's difficult because there is no one who can stand up and say, Bibi, we can't give Bezik, uh, you know, special benefits in terms of you know communications regulations, uh, because they donate to you, and that will create a perception of a, a problem. Ethics, of course, is what goes beyond just morality. 
right? You know, so if, if a politician sits down with a uh, business leader, let's say, and the business leader says, uh, I'll do X for you if you do Y for me, and the politician agrees to that, that is quid pro quo, and that is a crime. That's corruption with a capital C. Uh, you know, but if that doesn't take place, then it's like, well, if, if there's no real conversation, no actual quid pro quo, okay, but does that, that doesn't mean that it's moral or ethical to, you know, have the, say, the owners of, of Bezik come in and uh, chat with them, and then, uh, you know, all of a the sudden they start getting favorable uh, regulatory changes and, and exemptions and so on and so forth, and uh, they're, you know, doing favors for Bibi. Right, that that does create the perception of corruption, uh, and so uh, that and his conduct of late, uh, pushing election after election, refusing to appoint a successor or name a successor, refusing to consider a succession, uh, those those things are all kind of wrapped up in that narcissistic leadership style. And I, I like I said, I wish I could have stopped at just the positive, uh, but Bibi's leadership style has been a problem. That is why I contrasted it very strongly in previous episodes with the quote-unquote, all-star cabinet, which is very much not the Bibi Netanyahu show, right? This is a cabinet that is made up of all the top leaders in Israel, some very competent people who are, um, you know, some, some very strong personalities, but, a, but a, a team, right? This is a team of people who are going to have to work together collegially. They're going to have to figure out how to compromise with one another, and they're going to have to learn to work together, okay? So that's, that's a different thing. My main area of disagreement with Bibi Netanyahu is on the Haredi issue. Uh, he has pandered to the ultra-Orthodox Haredim, as, as they're called in Hebrew. Uh, they have special privileges like exemption from military duty uh, service. Everyone else has to go into the military, but they get exemption. Uh, they get special social welfare benefits, and uh, the, the social welfare system is heavily biased in favor of the ultra-Orthodox, as I've said, that you know, for your fourth, fifth, sixth child, you get so much more money per child than for the first one, two, or three If in terms of, of being poor and receiving benefits. The ultra-Orthodox tend to have eight to ten kids, so of course they get a lot of that money, whereas the average Israeli family has two to four children and they don't receive, if they are, if they are poor, of course, this is not for the, the well-to-do, but they don't receive the same benefits. And so there's special privileges for the Haredi, uh, and he has allowed that to go uh, without much question. He hasn't really put forth any change to that idea. And also, the ultra-Orthodox sometimes try to impose Jewish law as secular law. For example, segregating buses and uh, things of that nature. And Bibi has, has been a problem there. Uh, this is a problem that's broad in Likud. Likud has definitely uh, befriended the ultra-Orthodox and tried to um, pander to them. Uh, Nir Barkat has as well, so that's an issue that I, I have that bone to pick with Nir Barkat as well, just as just as much as Bibi Netanyahu. And I say that all again that you know nobody should go out and persecute the Haredi; they shouldn't be mistreated. Um, I actually believe, and I, as I discussed in a previous episode, Israel should have an anti-discrimination law to prevent discrimination in hiring against the Haredi and the Arabs. Uh, I think that would be very beneficial. Maybe somebody could pass that along to Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett, and Israel could uh, begin to implement that. Uh, it's time Israel had something of a civil rights act. Uh, they have similar laws on the books. It's just they're they're not they're not forceful enough, and and more needs to be done uh, to uh, protect employees, right, uh, and hiring practices. In any case, uh, I have strongly disagreed with his position on the Haredi issue. That's just me personally. I am personally 
my own bias. I tell you that the reason this is unbiased is because when I have a bias and an opinion, I will tell you. And that's my own particular issue. So if you are a supporter of the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox, you will not find fault with, with Bibi Netanyahu there. Uh, and lastly, a neglect of social problems. And, and that ties in with the Haredi issue a little bit, but uh, Israel has a lot of issues. The Russian population hasn't fully integrated into Israeli society. Israeli Arabs, uh, Beta Yisrael, uh, that, that is the Ethiopian community. Uh, there are just a lot of people who haven't fully integrated. There's still a little bit of a problem with the Sephardi Mizrahi issue that, you, you know, you have um, some of the Middle Eastern descended Jews not being given the same fair treatment as um, uh, the, the European descended. So there are some issues there. A lot of that needs to be healed, but it needs leadership. We need someone to stand up a leader who will encourage people to go in the right direction, encourage people to be fair in hiring practices with the Haredi, for example, and encourage the Haredi to go work in the workforce instead of leaving their wives to work for them uh, and uh, taking up so much social welfare benefits. Uh, for those who don't know, the, the ultra-Orthodox men prefer to study in religious schools all day. Uh, I guess they haven't read uh, the Rambam. Uh, Maimonides speaks about, uh, you know, we have to make time for study. Well. Making time for study means that you work and then <laughs> you make time for study later on outside of your work. In any case, uh, there's, there's a lot of problems there and those need to be addressed. So this new government sees itself as a government of national healing. Perhaps, perhaps they will be able to address some of these issues. And Yair Lapid has been a champion for uh, working against the special privileges of the ultra-Orthodox. And now he will have a coalition without ultra-Orthodox parties where he will be able to move forward with some of those issues. Uh, now, needless to say, uh, people like uh, Naftali Bennett and Gidon Sa'ar are not going to support radical changes. So whatever changes come are going to be slow. Like I discussed last time, perhaps uh, a, an egalitarian prayer section at the Kotel, at the Western Wall, uh, but not too much more than that. So uh, we'll get some uh, effort at the top of the uh, Israeli government and among the leadership to... Uh, heal these divides, to bring people together and to encourage a greater pan-Israeli society uh, where everyone is uh, Israeli, not Russian, not Ethiopian, not Haredi, not Arab, but Israeli. This is, this is, the, big, this is the big vision. Well, with that, that's another exciting episode that's run just a little bit long, and uh, I'll be back uh, it, during this week to discuss... Uh, the uh, inauguration of the new government and some of the details of that. And I'm just going to offer a little teaser. I have scheduled an interview next week with a member of the Yamina party who will be talking about some of the political issues in Israel that I will release there. And that will give you insight from the very party that has been the kingmaker, uh, very much the kingmaker in this uh, change block and, and in the political situation right now. So we will get... Uh, the story from the horse's mouth, so to speak, directly from Yamina. As always, please visit Inside Israel News on politicalvanguard.com, politicalvanguard.com, where uh, is the home of uh, Inside Israel News. Like the Facebook page so you can stay up to date, never miss an episode, and uh, we, sometimes I'm able to post some of the more interesting uh, events uh, that happen between episodes there so that you stay abreast of, of news. And uh, as always... Goodbye, Lahitrot.